Let's start with a quick audio check. So Brian, I'm going to start with you. Name three ingredients or dishes that the East Coast or Maryland does better than the West Coast. Oh, I definitely got three of those dishes. One is going to be a Maryland crab cake. That's for sure. You could um, just say crab cake. Yeah, crab cake in general. <laughs> yes. And then like pit crab beef. cakes only come from Maryland. People don't know a lot about Baltimore pit beef, but it is like slow cooked bottom rounds. So it's typically not traditional barbecue meat or cut. And they do a really great job of that. There's definitely some famous restaurants surrounding that, like Chaps Pit Beef. What else? I mean, anything with wild striped bass. I mean, that's our fish of the Chesapeake. I'd say it's probably my three. You sound good. Michael, three ingredients or dishes West Coast or LA does better than the East? I mean, I will say... Anything with avocado. Anything with avocado. Produce, produce, and produce. How about that? Those are perfect three. Those are perfect three. All right, you both sound good. Let's do it. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Wickles Pickles. Hey, Ian. Hey, Cappy. You pickle guy, by the way? You know what's really funny? I've just become one. Well, not just, like maybe a year ago, I started eating pickles on mostly burgers. Every burger now has to have pickles. Every sandwich has to have pickles. If there's not pickles in the house, I get kind of mad. Like they have to be a staple now, part of my sandwich, you know, construction of my sandwich. You must be though, right? I mean, you use them. I see you using them all the time whenever you're on your Instagram. Well, it's funny you say that. I've kind of recently became more of a pickle person. I wasn't. I grew up literally in pickle factories. My father was in the food service industry and I never had them. And jarred pickles just kind of, they weren't my thing. And I started getting into them, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, because Rachel Ray has this sweet and spicy pickle recipe and they're so good. And she also happens to be a fan of Wickles, which is how I first got into Wickles and some of their different products. And now I can kind of do the jarred pickle thing, mainly because of Wickles, but also it's actually a custom blend of spices and fresh ingredients that they use in their pickles. It's a 90 year old family recipe and they pack them in Alabama, which is pretty cool. That's why you like them. Family recipe. It's how you got into it, right? So that makes a lot of sense here and all this. Totally, totally. And they they have quite a few different products, but the two main ones they have are their original Wicked Brine, which is a little sweet with some heat, kind of like a bread and butter pickle in a way. And then they have a dirty dill line, which is more of like a classic dill flavor if you're into that. But I do want to mention, because we talked about this a little while ago, they have the Wicked Hula Pickles, which we I hadn't tried at the time, but I finally tried them. And they're so good and they're spicy. I there's love pineapp- spicy pickles. Yeah, dude. There's pineapple and jalapeno and pickle in the jar. They're good. You got to try them. I got to try them. They're going on my next burger. Promise. Yes, dude, for sure. Here's what I also love about Wickles. As you know, all of our partners give back to their communities. Wickles too. They believe in giving back uh, through donating food and other resources. They support different organizations, including community food programs and disaster relief efforts. They work with many different charitable organizations and foundations across the country. So great group of people. If you want to learn more about Wickles Pickles and their whole line of products, you can visit wicklespickles.com. 
And follow them on social media at Wickles Pickles. Wickles. We thank you. We thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's duo are chefs, restaurateurs, authors, TV personalities, dads, and two of the most well-known brothers in the food world. They're partners in multiple restaurants, including Voltaggio Brothers Steakhouse and MGM National Harbor, Starfish in LA, and several new projects opening this year and next. Grew up in Maryland, and now one's on the West Coast, one's on the East Coast. We'll start with Chef Brian Voltaggio, seniority. He's the executive chef and owner of Thatcher and Ryan Frederick, Maryland. James Beard Foundation Award finalist has appeared on Top Chef, Top Chef Masters, and Top Chef All-Stars. He resides in his hometown of Frederick, Maryland with his wife and their three children. Chef Michael Voltaggio has won numerous accolades for his cooking, including Food & Wine Magazine Best New Chef. He was a Top Chef winner, racked up a Michelin star, and more. He's appeared in several series on Netflix, Discovery Plus, Food Network, and other projects include collabs in fashion, food, sports, music, and entertainment. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with chefs Brian and Michael Voltaggio. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Nice intro. All right, let's get into it. You guys are two to three years apart or so in age, and you seem tight being business partners in most of your restaurants. Were you super tight as kids? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think growing up, whether it be just out on bikes, exploring the neighborhood, I think we always were hanging together. We always shared a group of friends, too. I mean, even though we're two years apart, it seemed like we always hung in the same circle, like even through high school. So, yeah, I mean, we're brothers. I mean, still, we had our own separate interests and stuff. I came to sports. Michael played football. I played more soccer. And so... Brian was my iPad growing up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was your iPad? <laughs> Pretty much, really. That was the day when you disappear on your bike for hours and no one gave a shit you're just gone you got home when it was dinner time i was just talking about the other day with someone our kids were on their ipad or something and i was like when i was young i used to just ride my fucking bike all over anywhere i knew every single street name in our town you know like yeah it's before google maps too we could get around we could actually navigate yeah exactly so this is when we usually have our guests tell us about like their childhood what they were into you guys just started getting into a little but what they were into as kids but since there's two let's switch it up Michael, tell us about Brian as a kid. What was he like? Brian was, well, how how early do you want to go back? (laughs) You feel young. You feel young. Brian, I mean, Brian, as far as I can remember, was always socially involved, I will say. So he was quite the ladies' man in high school, I will say that. He was, I don't know the best way to put this, but he was a popular kid, I'll say. Brian Voltaggio. I believe he was voted best looking in his senior superlatives. That's a true story. And then ended up marrying his counterpart, who was also voted best looking. And went, they went to prom together. And he is to this day still married to her. So yes. very rare story, a very rare success story. High school sweethearts. Brian managed to land one of those. <laughs> and, uh, my sister-in-law is an incredible mother. Why don't you tell me about Michael? So Michael and I, I mean, we grew up and we're very close knit. Two guys who kind of took over the neighborhood. I mean, whether it be on big wheels or bicycles, we hung out together all the time. We kind of touched on that, left early in the morning, didn't come home until it was time for dinner when the lights, the street lights went on. And so I think we were very tight growing up. And Michael, too. I mean, he, you know, he's trying to say that I was the only one who hung out with a lot of girls. I mean, Michael did, too. I mean, I think everybody knows that now. And he also 
played sports. He played football. Became, he was an incredible kicker for the high school we both went to. And then we both started working together at the same restaurant. It was a Holiday Inn in Francis Scott Key Mall, which is in Frederick, Maryland. It wasn't uh, where, a Holiday Inn Express. It was a real Holiday Inn. <laughs> that's where we got our start. So, you know, you go back to childhood, like where and how this all came together and how we started cooking. I mean, it started when I was 14 as a busboy. This is beyond the plate, though. I know. Let's hear about you, Brian. Yeah, no. And so, what makes you tick? Take it away, Michael. Take it away. No, when we started there, it kind of ties back. And we, we did it. As Michael says a lot, I was coming home with new clothes. I had a car, like, you know, I was making money. And then he got dragged into this business in a way, not because there's a passion for food at the time. I mean, yeah, we love food. We always sat down, we had dinner together at 5.30. It was really important to our family. The career kind of started and was kicked off by us just like wanting to be cool kids. And so, and have the cash to, to be able to hang out and have fun. So it's like a, it was a job. It was a job, like a true job. That's what we did and we worked hard and that's where we learned worth ethic and like, you know, what this industry was all about. And there's a second home and a family when it came to the kitchen. So were you both into food young, like, before you were 10, were you guys into food at all? Or Not really. I mean, for us, I think the ritual of eating dinner together at the dinner table was important. Like our mom definitely made sure like that happened every day. And that ritual was, I think at the time, more important than the food because we didn't realize how lucky we were to get the food that we were getting. Meaning like our mom did a lot of really good mom food, casseroles and just breakfast for dinner and all the classics, you know, it's taco night, spaghetti night, whatever it is. And then like, Many children, you know, parents go their separate ways and so forth. And so Brian and I were sort of caught between two households. And then as we got towards the working age, I was 15, I think, when I got my first job. He was 16 and then 17 when I started working with him at 15. He's two years older than me. We really, nothing was being handed to us, you know, like if we wanted to have stuff, we needed to earn the money to get it. And meaning not like anything beyond the necessities. Like if we, we had everything we needed as children, but if we wanted anything more than that, down to getting cars and getting to drive and like all that stuff, we needed to work. And then I would say when I was about 16 or so, Brian had already left the house and I was actually staying with my father at the time. And my dad and I sort of got into it one night and long story short, I wasn't really welcome at the house anymore at 16. And so that's when I was out on my own and I had to pay rent. So it then became about survival. Now is his landlord. Um, and not our mom. <laughs> our mom always, always did the best that she could. But the other side of it was was a little bit more challenging. Was that the end of that relationship with you and your dad? Or I mean, yeah, I don't talk to him. Though. We don't really communicate right now. Yeah. Yet. You have a sister? We do. Older, younger? Younger. Two years younger than Michael. In the biz? She was for a short time. She was a pastry chef. Not a short time, actually a pretty long time. A pretty amazing pastry chef. She went to culinary school after being in the Air Force for quite some time. She was a photographer first and became a pastry chef. Worked for, for me for a little bit with me. I hate to say for. It's not how it works when it's family. It's with. And worked in our restaurants for quite some time. And then, you know, it's... This business is taxing. It's hard to have family, you know, be there. So she got out of it. She is a mom now. So she's got her two children, her husband, and she got out of the industry for now. But she actually got into it because her son had a lot of food allergies. And so she wanted to be able to bake for him so he wouldn't miss out as a kid. And so she would make things without eggs and certain things that he was allergic to so that he could experience what other kids got to experience. Brian, first job was the busboy at the Holiday Inn, not Holiday Inn Express. Did you learn anything there besides it being a job for extra cash? Well, what I did learn at the time when I was 14, I didn't want to work in service. I, I thought what was going on in the kitchen was a lot cooler. There was knives, fire, like all 
just cussing and crazy shit happening. So I just looked like a lot more fun. So I ended up going to a vocational program in high school and then the chef let me cook. So that's how I got my first start. But it was different back then. Like the Holiday Inn was not, there wasn't like a corporate binder of make sure you make a number 12 today at six o'clock for dinner service. Like it was like, we were allowed to create what we wanted Mm -hmm. to create. And so these are these sort of skateboarding, weed smoking punks that got it together just during their season of whatever they played in school. Like I maintained my GPA during football season. And then outside of that, like we were at work. And so down to like classic garmage platters, like for Sunday brunch, we would make the old poached salmon platter where it looks like uh, the whole dead fish is just on the platter and you would build like palm trees out of carrots and upside down green peppers and stuff like that. And so it was like, it was real cooking for what the Holiday Inn could offer at that time. And so it actually was a really good experience. Oh, that's cool. Brian, you chose the culinary school path. Yeah. Why? So, you know, when we both set off and realized, I think we're going to turn this into a career, I ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America. Michael left went and did a prestigious apprenticeship down to Greenbrier and White Sulphur Springs. So he got paid to go to school and I had to pay to go to school. So that was the difference. And then we end up in the same spot, which for anybody out there wondering what's best, I mean, it's what's best for you when it comes to studying. I'm still paying back my I, right, <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, it was it was a great experience to go up there. I mean, I wanted to go to the best school that I knew of because I wanted to pursue this as a career. When Michael and I both look at anything. Basically, like, he got to executive chef of the Holiday Inn. That was his. Yeah, he had I hit plateaued. That. <laughs> and he's like, all right, what's next? And then as everything else started getting better and the, like, the industry started getting a lot more progressive really fast and sort of being a chef in the States started to be like, was getting recognized in a different way. Charlie Palmer's, the Danielle Ballou's, like they're all paving the way for this thing to sort of happen in the in, in this country that I think really started. I mean, there was always fine dining. You think back to like Jean-Louis Paladin and even earlier than that, but for like young American chefs to have this like cool career as opposed to like what my father once said to me is I figured you'd end up in the food service industry. Like it, it was something... I got, I got told you're going to be a stupid cook, but hey, it's the same and, thing. And it was <laughs> like, how did that feel when he said that? Were you like, well, now it feels great. I mean, and I mean, I talk more than he talks to him and I know that there's pride there for sure. But yeah, but also we got to prove him wrong in a lot of aspects when it comes to that. Because anything that Michael and I apply ourselves to, we're going to give it everything we got, even beyond food and cooking. You but know, even school, like Brian was on his own financially. He put his way through culinary school. He was up, he delivered pizzas. Was it Domino's? Yes, it was Domino's. <laughs> he was a full-time culinary student at the CIA, a Domino's pizza delivery boy, and then was taking the train into the city and staging at restaurants on the weekends because that was the only way he could get real experience. Because here he was, his trajectory was executive chef of Holiday Inn, Domino's pizza delivery guy. And you could see his resume wasn't going quite in the direction that he needed it to go. So then on the weekends, when he had like a few hours to himself, that's when he would go like work in the city. And Where'd so, you stage? Well, I mostly stage at the Oriole, and that's where I ended up getting my first job. Is that where you externed? Yeah, I did my externship there. And so what I would do is once once it was close to it, I just kept coming down there on weekends until it led up to my externship, and then went down there permanently. So that's pretty cool. That was my first job out of school too. Okay, so Michael, you chose the apprenticeship path because I read you didn't have the money and support for culinary school. Explain. Yeah, well, I knew I needed to further my education. I needed to do something more. And I somebody had called the Holiday Inn after Brian had left and was looking for him to make him a sous chef at this country club. 
And I had answered the phone because I was in the kitchen, but Brian didn't work there anymore. And I was like, well, this is his brother. He doesn't work here anymore. So if you need someone, like, I got you. And they brought me in to work in this country club. And I told them I want to go to school after this. And that's when the guy was like, look, work with me for a year. And he's like, maybe I can get you into this apprenticeship in West Virginia. And you can skip having to go to culinary school if you want. And so I went that path. He was already well on his way. It wasn't like I poached the opportunity from him. But I drove down there and tried out like on Christmas Eve. I didn't really I didn't get offered the position. So then I did enroll in culinary school in San Francisco. And then they called me back like a month before I was supposed to leave for culinary school. They were like, look, we, we had a position open up for you. We'd love for you to come down. I was 19 years old, moving to the mountains of West Virginia in the middle of nowhere to just study cooking. It was a great experience. I made $10.11 an hour, by the way. I wasn't getting paid that much. This was at the Greenbrier. That's fucking awesome. That was at Greenbrier? Yeah. And then I would stay in the wintertime and butcher deer. And this guy's he had a walk-in fridge in his front yard but because I did, again, like I didn't have much back then you said this is this the executive chef there no this was the butcher from the hotel who would take his vacation in the winter to process all the local deer and i'm like well and the hotel was very slow during that time so i needed to continue having cash and so i would go stand in his walk-in freezer at his house in the mountains and people would pull up with deer tied to their cars and i would cut them up and then lunch would be like we would use the deer carcasses as tables And we would eat pots of like brown beans and cornbread. And I would be sitting out there like in my coveralls and gloves eating beans and cornbread on the deer carcass that I was about to butcher. Holy shit. But he paid me tax for that money. So it was still $10 or $11 an hour, but it was no tax. That's your limitation covered, so you're good. That was a certified master chef over there at the Green Buyer, no? That my, when I was there, yes. And then he was one of Peter Timmons, one of the most important people in my life professionally, I think early on, just because he could like recite the first 128 pages of a Scoffier. And like, he was an educator. And I say was because he's passed away since, but he was just one of those. I remember I was cleaning my station one day and he, I just, he was Irish and I'm going to butcher this accent, but he's Mr. Voltaggio. Have you ever heard of a guy named Sir Isaac Newton? And I'm like, yeah, yes, chef. And he's like, the fucking laws of gravity. Clean the, I was cleaning the bottom of my station first before the top of my station. And he just laced me for that. But then we became sort of best friends through the process and through my education there. And I really think it came down to work ethic. And that's something that, that Brian and I have built. I think everything that we've ever done was built off of the fact that we're not afraid to work hard. And we're still not. Like we work, we will work hard and to get what we need to do done. You know? That's so cool. Like the two, the paths like the apprenticeship with the CMC, CIA, you know. We still stay close because like when I did my externship in New York, Michael ended up getting a job. And this was, again, during the winter season at Greenbrier where he came up to New York City, stayed with us. We stayed in like a a two-bedroom apartment with like eight people in Chinatown. (laughs) And we did it just because we couldn't afford anything. We had to paint the rooms on our days off. So we didn't, again, we couldn't pay rent in New York. And so we were living on Mulberry Street in this building in an apartment with like eight other culinary people on bunk beds. And the kid whose parents owned the building, they made us paint the walls inside the apartment building on our free time in exchange for staying there and then brian moves like uptown to like 62nd first moves up on the upper east side yeah (laughs) so i go up there one night and i'm like and i didn't have anything but a bag that's all i owned at the time and like i'm sitting in the kitchen which was also the living room and the bathroom and there was a mattress leaned up against the wall and this is a one-room apartment already two dudes living in it and i'm like 
what's up with that mattress? And he's like, what? And I'm like, yo, well, let me stay here. Like, I'm tired of painting those walls down there. You guys have an apartment that, like right. it's yours. And he's like, yeah. And he kicked the mattress down. And I was working for Larry Forgione at the time. And so I making, I think $350 a week salary. Yeah. I remember like once a week or once a month, I would save up. It was $5 exactly for a chocolate eclair and a cup of coffee at the little thing before you get at the bodega, before you get on the subway. And I think it was, I think it was once a week I spent that $5, but just sitting there with a hot cup of coffee and a chocolate eclair on the subway, going to work at 5am was like my reward for myself. And I just, I appreciated it so much. You know, when you have these food memories you and you're just like, got out of the club, like it was the shittiest cup of coffee and the worst chocolate eclair you've ever had. But it was like, for me, it was the best I'd ever eaten because you it earned was, it. Yeah. I, it was mine and I earned it. Yeah. Was that an American place? Yeah. yeah. 32nd Park. And then we opened up, Larry wanted to do like a tribute to James Beard restaurant. And so I think the oldest person in the kitchen, including the executive chef was 26. And we opened up this restaurant down the street from American place. I think we got, I want to say two and a half I or three stars. Too, yeah. And it was like, like I said, the oldest person in the kitchen was like 20, but we were making like the old black bean soup and like all the old, like James Beard favorites. And it was just, it was cool. It was a great experience to get an introduction to New York city at such a young age. I was 20 using Brian's fake ID to get into the tunnel and the sound factory and the limelight. So many of these restaurants I didn't realize you passed through. Eventually you were at Bazaar in LA. How did you get out there? I had left. I worked for Charlie Palmer in Healdsburg and then I'd gone back to the Greenbrier. They were building me my own restaurant. Basically they were building a new restaurant space that I was going to be the chef of. And they wanted like a fine grinning, like, like city restaurant at the Greenbrier. And then I was there and we did it for a season and I was sort of cooking my own version of modern food, I guess. I just sort of read and figured it out and staged in other restaurants and stuff. And then my friend, Mike uh, Gillet, who's a pastry chef, he lives in Vegas now, he was going to be the pastry chef of the bazaar. And we had worked together at the Ritz Carlton Hotel in Florida. And once he got hired, he's like, hey, they're looking for a chef for the bazaar. Just for the fine dining part of it in LA, you should go meet Jose. So I drove to DC, I cooked lunch for Jose, I left the Greenbrier, drove four hours, cooked for Jose, and he offered me the job after I cooked for him. But what happened was I thought I was interviewing to just do the fine dining restaurant that was in the back of the bazaar. And he was like, you know, Mr. Voltaggia, you know, Michael, I want to offer you the position of executive chef. And I was like, wait, the whole bazaar? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I've never had a job this big in my entire life. Did you say that to him? Yeah. And I knew we were going to be doing like, they were going to be doing mini bar style food. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And he goes, it's the same job you've ever had. It's I'll just build you a bigger kitchen and give you more cooks. And I'm like, okay, let's go. Jose was one of the, is one of those people that will do anything he says he's going to do. It's almost like the only reason he doesn't do something is he didn't dream of it. And he dreams of everything and he makes it happen. And so I needed to be in an environment like that creatively, professionally, and mentally where I was ready for another mentor. And Jose was that person to me from a family aspect to, I mean, he just, if your home wasn't right, he knew. And if your work wasn't right, he knew. And if they were affecting each other, he got, he wanted to know, like he didn't want anything to not be the way it needed. It should be. How incredible. I saw a pretty awesome post that you guys, a picture of you three in your Instagram, like what makes him beyond that? I mean, what makes him so incredible? You were with him before he had 30 restaurants before he's been in the limelight right now for World Central Kitchen stuff, even though he was doing World Central Kitchen type stuff before World Central Kitchen was World Central Kitchen. Well, yeah, there was DC Central Kitchen. And then he went to LA Central Kitchen. And then World Central. I mean, I guess your question is, how did he get to this Jose that we all see now? I, I guess like w what makes him so incredible? 
he's one of the, he's a dreamer, but he's a dreamer that makes his dreams a reality. And so there's very few people that have the, that won't take no for an answer. And Jose won't take no for an answer. And it's when he puts his mind to something and food to him is very, like everyone sees him for bringing that sort of like El Bui style food to the US and doing this molecular modern and all that stuff. But if you talk to him about the dishes that are important to him, it's the traditional Spanish tapa. It's all the, it's all the classic stuff that really excites him, but he's just such a, he's so passionate. And I hate to use that word loosely because some people say like, that's a very passionate person. That person uses passion. Jose, it's from his heart. And he's not, even when he addresses a crowd, you see it. He's like, people of America. And it's just like, he means that. And for me, it's infectious. And I think that if you're close enough to him and you get to be close enough to him, it sort of rubs off on you a little bit. Were you doing molecular before you did this? I was doing it, but I was like teaching myself how to do it. And so like at the Greenbrier, we opened this restaurant called Hemisphere, which was open for like one season only. And then they turned it into a steakhouse, like most fine dining restaurants. And I was basically just Back then you traded like notebooks with other cooks that you knew that worked at other restaurants. And so like if you staged here and somebody staged somewhere else, you would sort of flip and trade the information. And so there was no like the stuff wasn't on the Internet. And if it was, people were putting it up wrong. People protected their recipes. It was like, how did you get that recipe to make that gel do that? Or And then when I got to go work with Jose, it was like the books were open. It was almost like all the Bibles of all that food were open to us and any resource was available. Everything from Ferran and Alberto to, because there was a dialogue amongst all of them where they wanted to share the information. And that was really refreshing. Like there weren't any insecurities about sharing information. Everyone wanted the information out there because they wanted this movement to continue and happen and grow and evolve. And like, I was like, dang, this is, this people are not being selfish with this information. They want to share it. And that's when I think everything really started to accelerate across our entire industry. Yeah, that's super cool. What's the Pau Gasol story when he brought the Lakers into Bazaar? And- Pau Gasol, who obviously is a Lakers star and from Spain, is a good friend of Jose's. And one night Pau came in to the Bazaar and I wanted to make him a tortilla española, which is a, kind of the omelet, a little bit loose on the inside, very soft with potatoes and caramelized onions throughout. And you basically cook it until there's just a skin. I don't need to give you a tutorial on that. So normally they're about this big, six inches in diameter. I get this idea, I'm gonna make Paolo like a 10 inch or 12 inch, I forget how big, tortilla española, cause he's a basketball player and he's without, I'm like, I'm gonna make the biggest. And so I make it and I send it out. Jose gets wind of it and calls me and he goes, not even the world champion tortilla maker of the world would attempt to make a tortilla that big. Don't you ever do anything like that in my restaurant again? Like, because he cared deeply about the traditional tapa and doing things correctly. And then I I was like, dang, he's really mad at me. And so I never brought it up for years and years. And finally, I was just with him at, I believe it was at Bottle Rock or somewhere recently. And I asked him, like, Jose, how was the tortilla? Aside from all of that, and he told me it was perfect. I love it. Years later. Yeah. I mean, not in the moment, never. I love that. Brian, after... CIA. So you went to Oriole after graduation? Yeah, right after graduation. So I did my externship there and went down and I was offered a position. I think the day I graduated is December 9th and December 10th. I was in the kitchen at Oriole. I mean, there was like nothing in between. And so during extern, I, I just kept going down there over the weekend. So that's why I got my first position. It was my first time moving to New York. And so I lived there permanently. My wife moved up. Well, wife, fiance then, now wife. And we lived there for 
it was like almost six years. I was there up until 2003. But I ended up staying there because I worked under several different people in the kitchen. So Charlie was at the helm when it first started, but then Jerry Hayden, who has also since passed, been big influence in my career, incredible mentor. I worked for him, got my first shot as a sous chef there in about 2001. And then I ended up working for one other chef. His name was Dante Bacuzzi before I left. And I moved back down to DC and opened a restaurant for Charlie. So my time in New York was incredible. I mean, my wife and I, we always joked that one day we're going to go back and actually become New Yorkers, like live there and like retire there because I was a young cook. There's like, we couldn't afford to do any Thing. Like randomly every once in a while on a Sunday, we'd go to Jones Beach because it was free. I and mean, that's all we really did. We just lived. I, I worked to live there, but love that city. Was an incredible time working there. What kind of mentor was Charlie Palmer? Charlie, to this day, like I, I still am on the phone with him on a regular basis. I, I participate in an event every year, actually, that Michael created when he was working for him in Healdsburg called Pigs and Pinot. And I do that every March. I'm kind of like a staple there. So there's always at least one thing that kind of anchors like our friendship where we get together every year, which is fantastic. But I call him for advice all the time. He actually reaches out to me every once in a while when he's looking for people to join teams and stuff like that. So, but definitely, especially even also during like the pandemic and stuff like that, like just how to operate as a business, he would call him for advice. But he's, I think it's more like family now. Charlie has four boys. I stay in contact with them too as well. He's an incredible mentor in not only in the kitchen, but also in life. He's a chef for chefs. Like Charlie, I remember when I worked for him and he used to call Brian and complain about me when I worked for him. Yeah, that happened. Like what the (laughs) fuck is wrong with your brother? Like how do I, what do I, how do I get this guy to do what I need? But one day the ice machine was empty and he came in and he's like, why is there no ice in the ice machine? I'm like, I don't know, chef. It's been broken for like three days. The refrigeration guy won't show up. He's like, give me a screwdriver. Come on. And he takes apart the ice machine and like, no shit, 30 minutes later, it was full of ice. And I'm like, that's why he's Charlie Palmer. Yeah, yeah I'll tell you, I mean, along the same lines, you know, when I wanted to work there and I did a stodge, I was in the kitchen. And this is when like, even though I'm in culinary school, you're kind of getting wind of like celebrity chef, you know what I mean? Like there's somebody who's like well-known in industry and that was starting to like resonate a little bit that this guy is bigger than just this kitchen and these people, these chefs are really well known. And I see him pick up a mop and start mopping the entire floor. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, wow, this guy is that much about the overall environment in the kitchen and stuff. Like this is the kind of person I want to work for. I don't want to see somebody just on a cover of at the time. Yeah, but then if you would magazine. try to grab the mop out of his hand because you felt guilty, he'd be like, if you wanted to mop the floor, yeah. I wouldn't be mopping it right now. Right. So why are you trying to grab the mop now? Like, yeah. Those type of lessons. Yeah, it was a lesson <laughs> for sure. How old were you when you started CIA? Me? I was uh, 20. Yeah, 20. 20 no, you were so 22. 20, or no, 22. 22. So there's a young cook who came and worked at Oriol between you and Amar Santana that went on to have, I think, a 50 best restaurant. Do you know who I'm talking about? Or no? Amar? Oh, yeah. No, you're talking about Matt Orlando. Matt Orlando was on the podcast a few seasons ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I reached out to him and here's what he said about you, Brian. He said, Brian's actually the very first person I encountered when I arrived for my trial shift. He completely stone-faced me when I walked in. For my trial shift, I worked right in between him and Amar Santana. I learned a lot from Brian before he left to open Charlie Palmer's steak. And then he went on to say, you're the man and what up? Good. Oh, Matt and I have stayed in contact over the last few years when we became the chef cuisine at Noma. We got to go over and spend some time with them there. And then obviously you opened a mosque and it's just done incredible things in Copenhagen. And I, it's been a while since I've been over, obviously, because we kind of been shut down and travel, but definitely looking forward to get back and seeing him. He's done some stuff over there. He's just incredibly talented. But fortunately, we did a dinner actually one time at Volt and Frederick. And he flew back over and he did a dinner with us. And I just remember this codhead dish that he did, it was just, it sort of resonated with me. It's just an incredible, he's an incredible culinary mind. That's cool. 
So Jose seems like an incredible mentor for you, Michael, as well as some other chefs and Charlie Palmer for you, Brian. But how important is it for both of you to be mentors to your cooks or next generation? Yeah, I mean, that's where we are in our career now. The roles have flipped. You know, it's our turn now to start mentoring young chefs as we're opening new projects together in this next year and forthcoming. We're working, we're actually right now here in a location that's going to be one of our next restaurants. And we have our chef with us along the way to get him introduced to the project. And so we we have to now start to invest in, and we've always had to invest in our team. I mean, that's at what you do as a chef, but now it's time to give even more, to work even harder, to give them everything that they want and create the pathway for them to I become a great I think the great, biggest challenge now, chef. though, is getting them to understand that learning how to cook is really the most important part right now. And so, because when we were doing it, it wasn't, there wasn't Instagram and there wasn't all this stuff. There wasn't designer aprons. Like you weren't out, like you weren't worried about all that. You were worried about getting somebody else's notebook, getting recipes, getting experience and becoming the best cook. Somebody said to me once, I wanted to be a sous chef at a certain point in my career. And they're like, why stay a line cook for as long as you can afford to because you can never go back and learn how to cook. And it's like, that's the part that like, I think is very, it's even more important today because I mean, now people are chefs at home on social media and they have zero professional culinary training at all. They just did research on the internet and then turned their camera on and started cooking at home. And I think that's great. I mean, I mean, the information's out there and available, but that all that information had to come from somewhere. And it came from those early days, and I'm not talking about even like us as young cooks, but like back to Escoffier and the joy of cooking and like Julia and like all that stuff that was out there and that information that unless you had that hard book and you, I mean, Irma Rombrauer made that shrimp cocktail with grapefruit back in the seventies. It's like this information was there, but no one cared to go find it. And now it's like, it's just common knowledge and everyone knows how to do it. And so But being able to run a kitchen and run a business and balance that out with your life, for me, I think it's the same. Like I look at my two daughters, it's like I want their life to be easier than mine was. So I make decisions to try and pave that way for them. And I think we try and do the same thing for a lot of the people that work with us. Describe the So you guys are in Mammoth right now for a new project and you have Chicago, which was announced. That's where I'm based. So very exciting for me and Chicago. But describe process in your projects. If you have differing opinions or ideas or like how you work on finding common ground within a project. I think we have different roles. And then when it gets leading up to the cooking part. And so Brian is very good. Like I don't have a computer. I, I, I have an iPad and a phone, but like Brian's very good with the computer stuff. And I'm not. And so he. I send the email. In a lot of ways, like he's like my boss. I, in a lot of ways, I work for him because he understands the business side of all that. And so Brian is very much a Charlie Palmer in that way too. It's like he he understands all the stuff that has to get done. And so uh, let's talk about today specifically, like our yeah. process, because how do we get to now opening two restaurants in the next six to eight months? During the pandemic, we really held ourselves accountable. We're like, okay, we need to line some things up because who knows what the future holds. And so we started looking for projects and whether it was in the TV space, in the restaurant space, in the, we understood very quickly that something catastrophic was about to happen to this industry and we needed to stay ahead of it. So we did this deal, have this deal that's coming to fruition at Mammoth. And for us, it was very interesting because no one, like there isn't a huge food presence here. There's a lot of people that come here every year and there's a lot of good restaurants here, but nothing has like Like we weren't able to be like, hey, what about that restaurant at Mammoth? And so we were like, 
what if we go to a market where we can sort of be the, not the first ones, but be there early when there's already a built-in sort of demo that's looking for an elevated food experience. And so we're here now trying to like invite more people to come and do the same thing because food and beverage is really a super important part of travel. And if you have this incredible mountain or you have this opportunity to tap into that, then there's this audience here that we haven't gotten to work with that we get to work with now. And so here we are. I mean, we're literally at Mammoth right now planning this thing and we're trying to get this open by the end of the year. Yeah. First season. November. But process wise, we plan, we create the menus, we cook the food. We, I set up like right now I'm building an R and D kitchen in my house. I just moved. We get a lot of the same equipment that we're going to use in the restaurants into like for me at my house. And then he has them at the restaurant in Frederick. And so when I'm at home in LA, I'm not just like chilling. Like I have the same industrial pasta extruder to start writing all the pasta menu items. He just did a three day pizza class in in DC, Maryland, where he just submerged himself in pizza dough for three days. And so we're not like phoning it in. Like we're putting our heads down. Every time we do something like this is as if it's the first time we've gotten to do it. Because every time we do it, we realize it could be the last time we get to do it. And so we're not at the point now where it's like emailing a bunch of recipes and show up on opening night and be like, hey, cheers, everybody. Like, that's not our role. Yeah. And our, our mentorship as we're working with our team comes from the standpoint of like, we immerse ourselves, as Michael just said, in the process. So we're not just asking them to create. We're there alongside and mentoring them through the food that we're creating for these new concepts. And we always remain students of food. But yeah, we're cooks and chefs and we're mentors now at this point. But, you know, for us to continue to do the things that we do, we have to, I mean, to also remain relevant in our industry, we also have to push ourselves. We get in fights at three o'clock in the morning because we'll be like night before opening in a restaurant and I'm not satisfied deciding to like make a new dish at 3 a.m. the night before. And he's just like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to fucking bed. We're not doing that right now. And I'll be like, all right, well, then I'll just do it. And then you'll see it tomorrow. And like, we'll get in this whole, and that, but that's like the fatigue, the the fatigue (laughs) kicks in, in, but it's like, it's it's emotional for us. The whole process. It's, we're still, we did it in the beginning to survive and we're still doing it to survive, you know? And it's not, that's not real. You know what I mean? Like as you get older, certain things come along. You have children, you, the house, the car, the life that you want to live that you didn't live or could like the life you want to provide, like the whole thing, just you feel this pressure to like continue doing more. And so our hard part about that is we've never been very good. I think at surrounding ourselves with enough infrastructure or allowing enough people to do their part without us micromanaging it. And I think that's what we're getting better at now. It's like, let people fail so they can succeed for you so that you can succeed more. And I think that's what we're learning now. It's like, don't expect everything to be perfect right out of the gate, but you also have to teach people to help you. And if you do that, you're helping them in, at the same time. How know? are you guys at handling each other's feedback or criticism? Like if you come up with that new dish at three in the morning, do you make it the next day? And Brian, are you like, no, I like the fucking old one more? Or- no, I mean, I don't think we've ever gotten there because if there's questions about the dish and it's not working for some strange reason, we're talking to each other about it. And suggestions might not always make it to the plate, but they're always heard. Right. So never has there ever been any, like, I'm putting my foot down on this. It's we're talking through it just because at the end of the day, we just want the best dish for our kitchen, our team, our guests. And I think that we see beyond our own egos when it comes to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's going to be personal feelings and shit said to each other. If it's not, (laughs) if they don't like it again, when it goes back to like, what our job is, that's always paramount. Yeah. You guys have quite a few awards and accolades between the two of you. 
Michael, at what point did you realize you made it as a chef? I mean, I haven't. And that's, I don't say that to be cool, like, or try and sound like, it's weird because we work in this industry where we're supposed to take care of people. Like we're in the hospitality industry, right? And chefs talk shit about chefs more than, it's like every creative industry, I guess, whether it's music, whatever, people beef, people talk shit, whatever. For some reason in our industry, there's this, I find a group of like hypocrites that they preach hospitality, five stars, three stars, like all that stuff. But like, but then they talk shit about other chefs or they, they're not, there's like elite. And then there's, so I don't know, there's this hierarchy within the industry that to me just contradicts what the industry is all about. And so for me, making it to me is going to be when everyone understands the fundamentals of hospitality and we learn how to take care of each other better. I mean, you look at like what Sean Brock's doing right now. I think that's someone who woke up and had that epiphany, like where substance is taking over, stress, hard work, blah, blah, blah. And he finally got himself to the point where he had to push the reset button. And now he's opening something where he's providing resources for cooks and chefs to have a better experience than what we had. And I think that more people need to do like what Sean's doing and like abuse and all that sort of stuff. Like whatever happened in the kitchens coming up, it is what it is and this and that and whatever. Like we got to, no, I don't even want to say that. Like shit happens at work. And then when you get to a place in the universe where it's none of that's okay anymore. And it's like, but there was mental health involved in all of that. There was a lot of stuff that I think that we as chefs have a responsibility to collectively try and change the narrative a little bit, you know, and do teach people. Like I wasn't always the best boss, I don't think, but it was because that's how I learned it and stuff like that. And so I feel like I'll feel successful when the industry is functioning better as a whole. Yeah, I'll say one thing we learned over the pandemic and being shut down and closed is a lot of time to reflect and think about how we're going to reopen. And I know a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurant people did this same thing when they had the chance or the opportunity to do it. I mean, we all lost a lot, but when it was time, and a person, when I reopened a restaurant in Frederick, it was no more six, seven days a week, no more, you know, not that it was always like that long, but you know, no more, no more long work weeks. Everything's kind of capped in the 40 to 50 range when it comes to somebody who's a chef, you know, even CDCs, because there's a better work-life balance. People are coming ready to work. So it's, the industry is certainly changing and evolving for better you know, when it comes to a balance, even for me, like where I used to be extremely rock, like I got to be there for every hour of every minute of every guest. And I still want to be in all of our restaurants and we still have such a huge presence, Michael and I do, when it comes to our restaurants, we spend a lot of time in them. But there's also important time for yourselves. And like you need to, to go out and have dinner, not just because you're going out to have dinner to see what the next chef's doing down the street, because you get to go out, you're sniffing it all and just like enjoy life a little bit, you know? So put it off for a minute and sort of clear your head. And I think we're you know, just getting old. Yeah, and we're getting old. <laughs> yeah, that too. But there was so much time that I had that was pressing over that time where I got to spend time with family. We were on the phone like all the time, like being able to spend more you know time together. We wanted to now do more of that. In but we still want to open life. restaurants the way that we always did. And I think yeah. that that's, if we're contradicting what we're even saying right now, like spend more time with your family, like you need to find that balance. But right. we still approach every project like it was our first one. And they're hard. it's hard to open a restaurant. It's not easy. But we set it up in a way that we go in knowing the goal is like to give everything, set it up so that way then we can maintain the, the vision that we had. But it also yeah. doesn't, I think what made us work like that back then is that in your mind, it's all about you. You think it's on, it's you, 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 you. And, no, and to no, me, it's quite yes. selfish because 
really it's about everyone that works in the restaurant, but more importantly, it's about everyone that's coming into the restaurant. And I think that that's, what's making a lot of it. Like I used to stress about what's that wow thing that I can put on this plate that people are going to look at and be like, how did you do that? And it's like, then I felt obligated that I had to put that on every single dish that I ever cooked. And now I'm like, how do I make something that people are just going to eat it and just be like, damn, that's really good. And that's what I want to do more now. But also how do I get to let the chef that's working with us he or she needs to have a chance to be creative too. And so how do they get to have their voice and how do they get to go out in the dining room and take credit for what they've done? Because a lot of chefs out there would tell the chefs that work there, that's fine that you put this dish on the menu, but how does it make you feel that I'm taking credit for it now? And I think that if you really want to build a team, you have to allow your team to grow as you grow. And if you want to keep them, you need to make sure that they have an opportunity to grow past you. You mentioned you're out there right now with your chef. Do you hire new? Do you bring from other establishments as a case by case basis? We trade a lot. Like for instance, I had, when Inc was open in LA, I had a lot of really talented people working there. And when we shut that restaurant down, like us, for us, our people that work with us are our family. Like, and I know people say that, but I've got a lot of people that have gone through a lot of shit while working with me, after working with me. And, and he has too, whether it's, I don't want to get into like the dark stuff, but it's like they're family, you know, and we take care of them. And there's a reason why it's called family meal, because once people work with us in that capacity and you spend that much time together, you take care of them. And so like when Inc closed, I sent a lot of people to go work with Brian on the East Coast and they were willing to do it. And some of those people are still there. Nate, who's going to be the chef here, has left, worked for Brian and left and come back and worked for Brian. And then we did a pop-up together at the Bellagio in Vegas and Nate came with us. And that was the first time I really got to cook with him. And so now he's worked with both of us. And so he's going to be the chef here. And so we would never go open a restaurant somewhere and not have somebody that is that close to us be there most importantly for when we're not there, which is the reality. I mean, if we want to build a bigger company, we have to get out and do that. Yeah. It's rare that anybody has ever stepped into one of our kitchens and has never been either in one of ours or has come up through the ranks in the kitchen. Started, left, came back even, as Michael just pointed out. It's important to us, I mean, because we work extremely closely with our team and our chefs, and we want them to feel like that we're there collaboratively to work with them, to help make it better and help our vision come to fruition, but by doing it and helping to put them on, on part as part of the platform as well, and to give them exposure. At this point, I mean, touching back on the accolades, there's a time where, you know, I too were striving for that kind of stuff in our industry, right? And I think that, it's also something we reflected on. And yeah, it was in our 30s when we had like huge egos, and even in our late 20s, you know, go after stars and this and that and all of that stuff. And that stuff was all really well and important but at the time. But I think we've transitioned to the point, as Michael touched on already, is that we're here cooking for our guests. Like that's the most important part. That's like why I want to go to work every day. It's why I want to create experiences for people that where you can, you can take somebody who's having a shitty day and make it great. That's what restaurants are about now. And there's a lot of people that are just are saying that. But no, not necessarily providing it. I think we do a good job of that. What keeps you going? That. I mean, for me. <laughs> but I think it's as simple as that. It doesn't have to be. I don't think it has to be complicated. I love what I do because I love the hospitality aspect of it. I, yes, I'm proud about every plate of food that we put out into the restaurant. But I also I think about the lighting and music. The ambiance is the arrival when they come to the door. Who's greeting them? Like the entire experience of the restaurant is important to us. I think what keeps me going, I mean, it's insecurity. And it's like, you you talked a lot about our resumes and most of the stuff that we talked about was before Top Chef. So what happened, what, it was really interesting is that when we went to do that show, when we went to do Top Chef, we were immediately those guys from Top Chef. 
And so everything on our resume prior to that had gotten like erased. And like most of the stuff that you just talked about that we just spent all this time talking about was our resume before Top Chef. And so for whatever reason, like we got labeled those guys from Top Chef or whatever. And so it was very difficult for us obvious reasons but to yeah. retell everything that we had done blessing and a curse because we were those guys from top chef and so that developed this huge insecurity but when we did it we were like what if we can bridge the gap and what if we can be chefs on tv and be real chefs and i watched like the marcells and everyone before harold and everyone that was on top chef prior there were real like good chefs on the show and i saw that show I was like wait this is a food television show where they're going and finding chefs that work in good restaurants like Marcel had worked at Robuchon and he was telling his whole story and all that. And I was like, I wonder if we can go do this and be taken seriously. And I, I don't know that even after our season of that show, that it was still being taken as seriously as like, say, like Iron Chef America and like things like that, where those were where the real chefs came and just cooked once. But because there was this reality aspect of it, everyone knew everything about who Brian and I were as people, as cooks, as fathers, as whatever. And it was so far from the truth that we felt I, for me, I went, when I got back from that experience, I went to Pasadena and worked in a hotel there and just went back to like running a fine dining restaurant five nights a week where I made everything from bread through dessert, all the canapes, the breads, every course, like, because I was self-conscious of the fact that like, I'm just going to have this label. And so I feel like when we got really introduced to the industry, it was because we were on top chef, but then it like erased our resumes before that. And that was weird. It's so interesting you say that because I tried to do some research on you both, like without over researching, because I wanted to be genuinely curious. And I didn't know you worked for Larry Forgione. And like I knew the Charlie Palmer, obviously, but not like specific, like various aspects of it. And I have like some notes I'm going down right here. And I have like a whole Top Chef section. And as we're getting into this discussion, I'm like, I'm leaving it. I'm like, I'm not even going there because this is so much better. You know they what I mean? They saw that part. They saw yeah. that part. Everyone saw that part. No, and there's a lot of people that start their careers when, they're, when they get introduced to the world on those platforms. And we didn't. I mean, we started at 14 at the Holiday Inn at Frederick. And that's literally why we're here now. And we did it the hard way. You know? We did it the hard way. It's not because we went out. I mean, yes, we would have been on that show. That would have been, that, that would have been, that's great. And very appreciative of the doors that had opened, the opportunities to, to connect in different ways when it comes to charitable causes and things like that, that we're very much a part of. But we still would have been where we are in a lot of ways. Like we, you know, we still would have had been a part of great restaurants. We still would have strived to be you know, great in an industry, but we just took a different path. So social impact, it's a huge part of why we started the podcast, as you guys know, and I've come to realize in my travels for work and whatnot, y'all are mo way more than what we just said, Top Chef or a dish on a plate, a Instagram photo. You guys could do different events five nights a week. You know what I mean? Or donate a dinner here, cook at someone's house for this. So we wanted to kind of shine a light on that. So first off, I know, Michael, you had a nice post recently about World Central Kitchen. Brian, you did something great with No Kid Hungry. I'm on their leadership council, actually. So that's awesome. Thank you. But I just want to touch on that because I'm sure you both work with a number of different causes or organizations. Did, could one of you jump in and just talk about why you work with who you work with or what motivates you to do that? I, a long time ago, I first got to DC and opened a restaurant. I got introduced to No Kid Hungry. And during that time, and we were doing like every charitable event we could, even when I was in New York. And there's, they're all important. Every cause is important. But I 
quickly started to realize, at least for myself at that time, that I wanted to work with one organization. And I felt that when it goes, you talk about no kid hungry, talk about the fact that that leads to a lot of things like poor nutrition and stuff leads to some of the other causes that we're having to try to help. And food is extremely powerful. And so I wanted to like narrow my goals to one and attach myself to trying to end that. I've been doing it for years now. And we've raised an incredible amount of money. Michael and I together collectively have done a lot with them, including Chef Cycle, riding, getting on a bike and riding 300 miles over three days, which is grueling. But, you know, far, far less of a burden than children are going hungry in our country. And now it's even gotten worse. But they're making strides. And I've done stuff like not just by, by doing charity dinners and stuff, but gone and testified in Congress, gone at the state legislation level in Maryland and helped open up doors and unlock money for summer meals. So we're not just out there just yeah, doing the dinners and stuff and being present. Those are all great things as part of being a chef, being part of these organizations, but putting in the work too is what we both do. Love it. How about you, Michael? Similar? Are there any other organizations or causes? Or well, I mean, I've worked a lot with the LA Mission over the years. Yeah. For me, I went down there for the first time and I actually cooked Thanksgiving dinner. And when I say cooked it, like the first time I went down there, I actually did the entire Thanksgiving meal with their team. I wrote the menu and everything. And then I just kept going back. And I think this will be my like eighth year going down there. But just we cook food and people need to eat. And so if there's opportunities to do that, and a lot of times there's a lot of these organizations that will have an event just to have an event. And then only 10% ends up going to the charity because that's the minimum required funds. And then millions are spent on putting the event on. And for me, it was, we even one year got a little frustrated with that. And we did this event called Crab Cake in LA where we picked a different organization to give the money to, but we made sure that we had the whole event underwritten before we sold tickets. And that way, every time somebody bought a ticket, the money went straight to the charity. And so a lot of these organizations will bring young chefs in and offer them exposure at their event. And then a lot of times the money never really makes its way to the organization. And so we definitely, No Kid Hungry is one that we've been working with for years. We've seen the work that the money does. The mission to me is, is no different than that. And I think that there's but we could, like you said, seven nights a week show up and do an event for a different organization and you can't. So another thing you can do now that we have this thing in our hand where we can distribute all this information is, is help with that too. Like my Jose, who's been painting my restaurant for years, painting my house, helped me renovate it. We've been together every day for the past couple of months and suddenly passed away last week. And so again, like I go to Instagram and I post his family's GoFundMe because his son now needs to figure out how to bury his father and take over the family business. But because Jose, Jose was a part of the restaurants. Like he came through our family, he's family, you know, and that's just, it's not even about what you want to do. It's what you should be doing. It's your responsibility. If you, if these people give their, give themselves to you the way that they do, then you have to give a piece of yourself back too. You know? I love that. Sorry to hear that, man. So I'm going to say something that you guys haven't heard me say, but I say it in nearly every episode. You could give money, you could share your voice, you could give your time and none of them, th there's no wrong answer there. I mean, someone could give a dollar, someone could give a hundred dollars or whatever you can afford. You also don't have to reach in your wallet. Donate 30 minutes of your time a month, an hour, or use your voice. And by using your voice, that could be a social media post. And you don't have to have all the followers in the world. But if you post, you know, you post something and one person sees it and you can make a difference for them, you'll likely make a difference for more. But there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And by you picking up your phone or resharing a GoFundMe, that's incredible stuff. So appreciate that. I just find a lot of the information that's getting distributed is not it's almost like it's more important to be able to distribute the information than the in information that's being distributed. I just, I say like, before you push post or send, like make sure what you're putting out there is important. You know, don't do it just for the likes or the followers or whatever. Like, it's like, 
how many people saw what I did versus like, this is really important to me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do a quick speed round. A few questions. We'll bounce back and forth. Number one, Brian, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, last night we had three dinners. <laughs> we went to three different restaurants. Obviously, we're getting to know our neighbors and we went and checked out a couple of things. But so there's probably I, plenty of dishes. Order two steaks. He had a New York strip. He had a ribeye. <laughs> and so he had so a, shark, a, a grand charcuterie platter. He oh, had a slice it. of pizza. <laughs> nah, Best slice true. of pizza I've had in a mammoth for a while. That's good. good. That's good. Yeah. Michael, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Brown butter. I mean, that's the easy one. Mm. That's new. Brian, you? That's a good one. Fresh baked bread, too. Like, I love that first thing. How about smell in the kitchen you hate? Either one will bounce. Opening up a Krybeck bag full of radish. That's or, been or cauliflower. Or cauliflower, yeah. Yeah. It smells like farts. Yeah, so that's really. Like. <laughs> Michael, what pisses you off in the kitchen? Uh, I can answer that. So when people are unorganized, Michael likes things in, in, in very meticulous way when it comes to even setting up a cutting board and how you work and working in 90 degree angles, which I actually learned from him. Like, not that I didn't think I already worked that way in some ways, but like just... You know what honestly pisses me off in the that. kitchen though, outside of the obvious stuff is how, this is going to sound really, how cooks talk to each other, how people talk to oh, each other in restaurants. We always had this like, you know when you fire a dish and it's like, Two fucking minutes out, chef. It's like, but if you were like working in a doctor's office and the doctor was like, hey, what time's my 3 p.m. appointment? They're late. And the secretary was like, or the receptionist was like, they're going to be here in 15 fucking minutes, doc. Like you can talk like that. And right. so it's almost like if this is your profession and you're choosing to do this, then be professional when you're here. But also we have a no drinking policy at work too. Like we're not, we don't drink at work. We don't drink in our restaurants. We don't. I'm not behind the bar. Like if I'm working service or whatever, there's no glass of wine in a paper cup. We just, I mean, maybe at an event occasionally or whatever, and we're cooking with friends that we haven't seen in a long time. But if it's not okay for your staff to do it, then it's not okay for you to do it type of thing. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So that was what pisses you off in the kitchen. What makes you happy in the kitchen? What makes me happy? I think it's just, it's beyond making your guests happy when the entire team and there's great, great synergy and service where Everything's working because every day is different in the kitchen and environment. You know, every reservation is different. But when you have that where the, the morale in the kitchen is high, the guests are having an amazing experience. The service is fantastic. The front of the house is on point. You know, just when the vision of what you want to have happen in a restaurant when everything is clicking and not that it doesn't all the time. There's sometimes peaks and valleys here and there. But when it's buzzing, when it's right, when it's perfect, those are days that are always great. <laughs> always make I said no favorite cooking utensil questions, but do you both have a go-to snack in your pantry that you love? I'm salted almonds right now. Salted almonds. Yeah. I've been eating. <laughs> I've been eating those freeze-dried snap peas that you can get at oh, the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> I got them on flight, and I took a picture of it because I loved it that much. And so I've been, I have those at home all the time now. Nice, nice. Summer grilling season is here. It's kind of always there for you in California, Michael. You either of you have a favorite thing that you grill, that you put on a bun, a roll, something? Not on a bun or roll. I mean, my favorite cut of steak is ribeye, and I cook that a lot on the grill. I mean, kind of simple. Like, when I'm at home, it's just, it's fairly simple presentations. Really great, delicious foods. I have a garden. It's more like kind of a farm. So, like, we have strawberries, we have greens, we have kale, we have all kinds of stuff. So getting those ingredients out and completing a meal is, for me, relaxing and I like dry rubbing a whole side of salmon or fish and putting it on the grill. Yeah. And I think that that actually may, fish is intimidating for people on the grill. I think if you do the whole side, it's actually less intimidating. Mm -hmm. And then you get to eat it more ways. You can let it get cold, make a salad. You can eat it as a sandwich, like you said, or on bread. For me, it's to go get a whole side of salmon, put a dry rub on it and put it on the grill. Nice. Like it. All right. Let's close it out. I love that 
you all still work with each other and have all these partnerships, obviously, because the opposite would suck. But with that said, is there a dream restaurant that you guys would want to do? Yeah, I mean, I together or separately? You started to say I, so separately, unless you want to do together. There, there's the thing that I say a lot when I cook, and it's like if I'm at home and I'm cooking something and I fuck it up and like I fix it and I tweak it back and I serve it to my now fiance, and I'll say things like, I wish I could have a restaurant where I could do this, where I'm, I'm cooking at home, like at home. And because sometimes you don't have the time to fix everything or this or that or whatever. Or so to me, it would be where I could cook and keep cooking something each course until it was really fucking good and give it to somebody to eat it. You know, individually, I mean, this is people are doing this now, but there's a funny aspect to this. So I have where I live in Frederick, I have a big garden. It was kind of a farm. There's a barn there. Don't have the means to like renovate and get it into this spot where I'd want to have it. But there's kind of like a fun thing where if I could literally just invite people over in a different way and have them come experience me just cooking one or two nights a week or whatever at my house in this barn, I'd create like a small kitchen using ingredients that are there. But the funny part is because like literally I could go out like in the morning where it'd be like in my pajamas, boxer shorts, just like just doing my prep work <laughs> like at my house. Like it's almost like you're just waking up and, and it, cause the funny thing is like, normally like you say, I, I even during a pandemic learned that like a lot of people can work at home and virtually and all of that stuff, like is what we do. We can't work at home. And so I think it'd be kind of cool. To be like apparently to Julia Child's yeah. house or James Beard's house. Those were the best restaurants to ever. Yeah. Exist. Right. So that's kind of the point of what I'm trying to say and what he's saying. It's like bring that hospitality back into the house, but it's hard. It's still hard work. Still our job. Like everyone has, my buddy told me this the other day. He's like, you know, it was funny during the pandemic. Everyone was cooking at home, cooking at home, posting, cooking at home, cooking at home. You guys got time off from your job and now you're going to go home and do your job at home. And it's like, right. It's kind of wild, but we still love it. We're still going to keep doing it. We're going to open these restaurants. We're going to see you in Chicago and we're going to be in the kitchen working. Somebody tells us we can't anymore. Yeah. Brian, if you could give a piece of advice to your 21 year old self what would you say my 21 year old self travel more i should have like at a younger age and I, I i do regret it now i'm looking at my kids like i want them to do it because i had the means as a cook and a chef i could have gone out there and done more of that i could have explored more cities and more more even more countries and i should have done it now i'm able to do that a little bit more but i do regret that part especially as a cook Michael, if you could give 21-year-old Brian a piece of advice. I'm just kidding. Michael, what advice would you give to young line cooks when they come to you for cooking advice? Career cooking advice. If it was career advice, I would say as hard as it is, party less. Like Focus on taking care of your body, taking care of yourself. Don't stay up as late as you think you need to. Get Go to bed a little earlier and get up earlier and see what you can learn because it's like I wasted a lot of time. Those hours between midnight and 8am, I spent a lot of those hours awake too. And like that part for me was probably one of the biggest things I regret the most is like, why did I need to be at that club and take the cab from the club back to work the next morning? Like that that wasn't good for anyone. And it's not worth it's not worth it. You're not don't feel like you're gonna miss out on something because one thing that you could miss out on is doing something incredibly cool with your career and yourself as a human as a person. You guys I love this. This was fucking awesome. Thanks for the chat. Good luck with all the projects. I look forward to seeing you both in Chicago. Thanks for all of your work. Yeah, with we'll see you there, man. Don't we'll get hungry in all the organizations you work with. And likewise, thank you for yours. Yeah, yeah man. Thanks. Have a good one, guys. You, you too. too.
Thanks again to Chefs Brian and Michael Voltaggio. Find Brian on Instagram at Brian Voltaggio. That's B-R-Y-A-N-V-O-L-T-A-G-G-I-O. Find Michael at M Voltaggio. That's M-V-O-L-T-A-G-G-I-O. To learn more about Share Our Strength No Kid Hungry, go to nokidhungry.org. To learn more about LA Mission, go to losangelesmission.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at Oncappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.